Well, again, welcome. If this is your first time here, we're grateful you guys are here this morning. Uh, as I said earlier, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And I uh, just want to come up and, and introduce my friend Noah to you this morning. Noah is going to be opening up God's word to us this morning. Uh, as I mentioned, I think last week, uh, I've taken a little bit of a preaching break over the summer, and so we've had a few different people preaching. And so uh, Noah agreed to come up uh, from North Carolina to open up God's word with us this morning. So we're going to take a bit of a break from Galatians this morning, and he's going to jump in the book of Acts uh, with us today. But uh, for those of you that don't know Noah, you may know him because we've mentioned him. He's been here one other time and shared a little bit. Uh, Noah and his family uh, serve as missionaries down in the Dominican Republic, uh, specifically kind of reaching out to and training up Haitian pastors uh, to serve the Haitian population both in the Dominican Republic and in Haiti. And so they've been down there for a few years, kind of back and forth doing that. Uh, Recently started up a more formal theological training school uh, called the Hispaniola Institute of Theology. Uh, And so Noah is heading that up and training other pastors there to help teach those classes and equip those pastors uh, with just core truths of the gospel and uh, and theology and all that stuff just to be able to serve uh, the people down there with the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word, uh, so that our brothers and sisters might have uh, the meat of God's word to be able to then go out and be on mission in their communities as well. So right now, Noah and his family are in North Carolina hanging out there for a bit. Uh, that's kind of home for them. And so they drove up yesterday, and uh, he's here today to do that. So this is Noah. He's going to open up God's word. I'm going to pray for him real quick and then let him jump in. So let me pray for you, brother. Father, I give you thanks for Noah. I give you thanks for his family. Uh, I just thank you that they're here today uh, to worship with us and then to help us lead us in worship as we look at God's word and sit under it this morning. So I pray for Noah as he opens up to the book of Acts, Father, this morning, that you would use uh, the words and the thoughts that he has put down and has been mulling over uh, just to to bring those to us, uh, Lord, that you would use that uh, by your spirit to impact us today in our hearts, our minds, uh, just that would impact our lives, Lord. The way we live this week would be different because we've sat under your preached word this morning. Uh, Lord, there's nothing special in what he has to say. It's what your word has to say. And we believe in the power of your word as it's preached. And so we pray, Father, that you just would um, continue just to be faithful as we listen to it this morning. And so we thank you for Noah. Uh, Lord, help him just to rest in your goodness and grace as he preaches this morning. And may you be honored by it. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, brother. I want to begin by saying... Um, you all have um, some exemplary leaders, and, and this is why I say that. I have a family of seven. Uh, we have five children. And the last two times that I've been here, your pastors have said, hey, why don't you come stay at my house? Uh, they could have they could have, they, they and, and, and did offer uh, to get hotel rooms and those kind of things. But the, the hospitality of your church leaders is exemplary. And and you know that an elder must be hospitable. And, and I see that really um, exemplified here, really playing out, really as a, as a strength of, of what your church leaders are leading you in. And secondly, your church leaders love you very much. Uh, I have conversations with them and, and talk with them often. Um, I'm about to spend a, a week with Alan, and uh, surely I will hear more and more stories about the way that they're very purposefully caring for you, um, leading you, seeking your good, putting in uh, hard work and time to, to see you grow in Christ. And so they are a great gift to you. And so I want to encourage you, pray for them. Encourage them. Uh, it's uh, pastor work is lonely work. Um, and, and what we have to offer our pastors is encouragement. Pray for them. Uh, let them know that you're growing through uh, their ministry among you. Serve their families. Help them 
uh, reach out to them. Uh, they have spiritual needs also, and many, many times those needs are met through your kindness and generosity towards them and through your service of them. So please make sure you do that. Thankful to be here with you again today. Um, we are going to be in the book of Acts, and so if you want to turn, turn to uh, Acts chapter 18, um, this is a prayer card. They're out on the Connect table. Uh, it's a prayer card for my family and I. If you want to pray for us and the work that we do, you can stick this on your refrigerator, and it will remind you to, p- to pray for us. If you will turn with me to Acts chapter 18, we will jump in this morning. Sorry to um, take you out of the book of Galatians. I know that that can be kind of disorienting, but I hope that the things that I uh, encourage you in this morning will fit nicely with what you've been learning there. Um, I have had multiple moments in my life where I was genuinely afraid. And one of those occasions was on a short-term mission trip to Haiti. Uh, my, my two older brothers and a friend of ours, we had been there for a, a couple of weeks, and, and we were walking around, and uh, we kind of walked down this road, and we saw in the middle of the road there was a burning tire. And if you've ever been to Haiti, you know that burning tires are not an oddity, uh, pretty standard. And so we didn't think much of it, uh, so we keep walking towards this tire in the middle of the road, and, and as we get there, we realize there's some other things in the road, some, some large boulders kind of nicely arranged. And, and as we get closer, we realize this is a barricade of some sort. And just as we kind of walk up to it, a truck, a large dump truck, comes down the road towards us, and it pulls up to right in front of the barricade. It stops And then it goes into reverse and goes backwards as quickly as possible, as if it was fleeing something that was behind us. And so naturally, we turn around to see what is it that's behind us. And this is one of those moments that will stick in your mind forever. I'll never forget what this looked like. It was a mob. It was a large, angry mob with people with machetes and sticks and rocks. And they were coming towards the truck as if they wanted to dismantle it with said machetes. And if you're ever in this situation, you should run. And so we did. We ran. And we ran down a little alleyway. And, and we're really the only white people for, uh, you know, anywhere in this community. So we kind of stick out like a sore thumb. And so we run down this alleyway. And this family sees us running towards their house, their little hut. And they say, yeah, come in, come in, come inside. And they kind of put us inside with all the, all the children and the teenage girls. And uh, So we get down and we huddle down on the floor because we're very afraid. And then it happens. Shooting. Lots of shooting. And just so you know, if you're ever in a shootout, a, a house made of reclaimed tin and wood does not instill confidence. We were afraid. And, and so if you're ever in that situation, you should pray. And so we did, loud. And as we prayed, the, the gunfire uh, subsided. Things kind of calmed down a little bit. And, and as things calmed down, I, I looked up and realized that no one else was huddled under the table with us. In fact, they were quite amused that we were huddled under the table. And so come to find out, uh, this series of events had been playing out over and over and over again over the last couple of months. You see, the police weren't shooting at people. They were just shooting in the air to scare people away. 
And so for all intents and purposes, this was a, a false alarm. But nonetheless, I was genuinely scared, even scared for my, my, wife, my life in some ways. I actually texted my, my wife during that um, series of events and said, pray, shooting. And so she prayed. <laughs> As we look into our passage this morning, we're going to see a man that is afraid. And for good reason. That man is the Apostle Paul. Many times we don't think of the Apostle Paul as a man who was afraid. But when he came into Corinth, he was afraid. And he tells his friends as much when he writes to them in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3, you can see this. It says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And so when the Apostle Paul comes into Corinth in the 18th chapter of the book of Acts, he is afraid. And so we might ask ourselves, what does Paul have to be afraid of? Well, let's, let's look back. Let's survey the book of Acts quickly. So just a year earlier, Paul and his, close, his closest friend Barnabas, they had had a sharp disagreement and they had parted ways. Paul then links up with Silas and they go through Asia. But as they go, they're forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak. And this is the very thing that Paul intended to do. Then the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to go into Bithynia. And feeling a bit aimless, Paul has a vision from a man, a man from Macedonia. And he's asking them to come and to help the people of Macedonia. So concluding that God is calling them to Macedonia, they go. Their first stop is in Philippi. In Philippi, they're stripped and beaten and jailed. Then they're forced out of town. From there, they go to Thessalonica. And before a mob can take hold of them and beat them and strip them again, they flee by night. Then they go to Berea. The mob from Thessalonica comes to Berea, but they escape again. Paul escapes to Athens, and when he arrives, he stands and waits for his friends there. But it takes them a bit of time to come. So Paul, as usual, proclaims the gospel in Athens. And Paul is essentially laughed out of Athens for preaching Christ in the resurrection. The most dear thing to him, Christ in the resurrection, he's laughed out of town. All of this has happened over a year's time. And so understandably, when Paul comes into Corinth, he's pretty low. He's pretty beat down. He's alone. Look with me in Acts 18, verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4 read this way. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded that all the Jews leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. And they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So our passage picks up this morning as Paul comes into Corinth. And the first thing Luke tells us is about Paul's time in Corinth is that he meets a man named Aquila. So one of the first things we might wonder about Aquila and Priscilla is whether or not they're Christians. And I'm inclined to say yes, and, and this is why. A few reasons. 
Firstly, these two had just been ejected from Rome because of their ethnicity. So the, the, the ruler there, the king there, is ejecting them because they're Jews. And so they, they come to Corinth. And the odds of being persecuted while, while hanging out with Paul, they're pretty high. Because wherever Paul goes, Paul gets in trouble. And so what we can see there is that these folks have just been run out of their home in Rome. They come into Corinth. And then they take on another opportunity to be persecuted. I don't think they would do that if they weren't following Christ. I think this is an expression of their following of Christ. Only a committed Christian, I think, would take that type of risk. Secondly, Paul lives with them. So it would be strange for an unconverted Jew to let Paul live in their house if they did not believe in Christ as he did. Again, they would be opposed to his message if they weren't walking with Christ. Thirdly, they do business together. Again, it seems that an unconverted Jew who'd just been out of, run out of town in Rome would not take the risk of taking Paul on as, a, as an employee. Their financial stability would be in danger in doing that. And so I think that type of risk is representative of them knowing Christ. And lastly... The notion that they could be Christians is plausible because of this. Remember, in Acts chapter 2, you got all these people coming into Jerusalem. Peter preaches his first sermon, and two of the places that are mentioned in that list of places that those people are from is Pontus and Rome. The only other place in the book of Acts where those two places are mentioned is here in Acts chapter 2. So, There's a Christian presence in Rome, so they could have heard the gospel there. And they also could have heard the gospel were they in Jerusalem on the day that Peter preaches his first sermon. So we should conclude these folks are Christians. They're acting like Christians. They have access to the gospel. Some translations say that Paul found Aquila. Others say that they met. It's not clear whether he sought them out or not. But what is clear is that Priscilla and Aquila are exactly what Paul needed. In them, he finds friendship, he finds a place to live and work to do. Really, all of the things that Paul needs, when he comes into Corinth, he finds them in Priscilla and Aquila. In the spring of 2013, my wife and myself and our four children moved into a small Dominican neighborhood. Uh, We were transitioning from working with Haitians living in Haiti to working with Haitians living in Dominican Republic. We had no furniture, no car, no English-speaking friends. We didn't speak Spanish, and we knew very little about the culture. And it was kind of like we just got dropped in there. And you're all thinking, wow, why would you do that? Um, we just did. That's what we thought God wanted us to do, and so we, uh, we pursued that. And, and so we found ourselves in this, this position very alone. And after a few days of being there, I noticed some children playing in a neighbor's yard. A couple of houses down, there was two black children, some Dominican children, and a little white-haired kid, really blonde hair, playing in this yard. And, and so it's not uncommon for there to be white people in our city, so I didn't think much of it. And then after a few days, the next day, I uh, went to go get some drinking water. We buy drinking water there, so I go down to the store to buy some drinking water. And as I come up to the store, there's a kind of large, broad-shouldered white guy standing there. And he's got all these little kids kind of hanging around him. So I come up, I introduce myself to him, and I learn that he's the father of the blonde-haired kid and the the two black children. 
And so we chatted a few minutes, and we kind of sniffed each other out, as missionaries do. Uh, when missionaries kind of run into each other and they don't know one another, they kind of like sniff around like, what are you doing here? So we did that. And then the next day, Steph and I, they, we walked over to their house where they live. And we began to talk. And as we did so, it became clear that Pat and Jenny and Steph and I, we had a lot in common. They had four children, all the same ages as our children, two adopted from Haiti, one born on the exact same day as one of our children. They're from Tennessee, which is almost like North Carolina. He loves college basketball, which if you're from North Carolina, that's what you love. And it was obvious that they loved God and his word, and they were very thoughtful about how to minister to the poor. Over the next two years, our family would become family with them. We would do birthday parties. We would pray together. We would worship together. We would study the Bible together. We would do ministry together. We would do life together in a way that made ministry doable and joyful. The miles were exactly what we needed. And God knew that. And I hope that we were exactly what they needed. God has people. And he wants those people together. The miles have been one of the greatest gifts that God has ever given our family. And we would not be where we are in ministry had God not given us that gift of them. So let me ask you this. Do you have a Priscilla and an Aquila in your life? Has God brought to you near and dear Christian friends to soothe your weary heart and soul? Has God brought you people like that? Have you sought them out? Have you, have you gone to find those types of Christian friendships? If you're feeling weak in your pursuit of God and his mission, ask God to send you brothers and sisters to bolster your faith like Paul found in Priscilla and Aquila. Ask God to give you the grace to search those people out, a desire to find the people that he has for you to do that type of life with. And so secondly, I would ask you, are you being Priscilla and Aquila to anyone in this body? Would Paul find a place on your couch? This is a great risk that they take. Would you take that risk in having Paul in your life? Would Paul find a job at your business? You may lose accounts taking a guy like Paul on. But would you love and serve people in this body that way? Would you take that type of risk? Your family might advise against you having dangerous friendships like the one that they had with Paul. Would you take that risk? Would you be willing at sacrifice to yourself to invite people into your life and into your home to counsel them and love them and soothe their spirit in a really specific way that, that God wants to do through you for those people for this time. Are you open to that? Are you closed to that? Have you built fences around your life that do not let people near you that may be hard or dangerous or messy? 
or needy? Do you have relationships with people of mutual encouragement? We see back in our passage that as is Paul's pattern, he reasons in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks that Jesus is the one that God promised would come. Seems that Paul is working to provide for himself, making tents, and his new companions, they're working together. And then he's using the synagogue as a platform for his teaching and preaching, for proclaiming Christ. So he's kind of bivocational at this point. He's working some during the week, right? And then when he has opportunities, he's going to go teach and proclaim in the synagogue. We see in verses 5 through 6, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So upon first read, when you, when you read verse 5, it seems like that when Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia, Paul is so occupied with the word that he doesn't have time for them. When it says that when they arrived, he was occupied with the word. But if we look at how the NIV translates verse 5, we get a little better sense of what's going on. It says, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively exclusively to preaching. So it's after the coming of Silas and Timothy that Paul is able to devote himself completely to his ministry of the word. And this is due to a couple of specific encouragements that Silas and Timothy bring to him. First, they bring good news about all that is happening in Thessalonica. You see, Paul did not have Facebook So if he wants to see how his friends are doing, he had to talk to them in person or send them a letter or receive news from them from other people. So the last thing he knew in Thessalonica, things were pretty bad. Remember, he got run out of town. And when he left there, there was riots and people were being roughed up and mobs and all kinds of crazy stuff. So he doesn't really know that things are well there. So he's waiting on a a status update, if you will. And so he's encouraged by the news that Silas and Timothy bring. We see this in 1 Thessalonians. If you look in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, verses 6 to 10, it says this. Paul's writing to the church at Thessalonica while he's in Corinth. Okay, so while he's spending time in Corinth, he writes to Thessalonica, to the Thessalonian church. And he says, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia... Paul was encouraged with the word, testifying to the Jews. No, I'm sorry, that's wrong. Let me turn it in. Sorry. First Thessalonians 3, 6 through 10 says this. But now that Timothy has come to us, so Timothy's come from Thessalonica, Come from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as long as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in, our, in all our distress and afflictions, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For we now live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy we feel for your sake before God. As we pray most earnestly, night and day, 
that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So the Apostle Paul gets this news from Silas and Timothy. And he writes back to them saying, I am so encouraged that you are growing in the Lord and walking in the Lord that our work there was not in vain. So the the Paul that we see coming into Corinth when he receives this news, we can tell from this letter he's, he's a little built up. He's a little encouraged. He's seeing God at work. He's seeing God do things. He's pretty pumped up. In addition, Silas and Timothy bring money. We see in 2 Corinthians eleven nine. he's writing to the church at Corinth, reminding them of what Paul's writing them, reminding them of what he did among them, how he lived. And he says, when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia, Silas and Timothy, supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you, burdening you in any way. So Paul was able to minister among the Corinthians because Silas and Timothy brought money. They brought support for him. We see something similar in Philippians 4, verses 14 to 15. It says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So we see that the money that they brought was actually from the Philippians. So what you have is a church in Philippi that's really invested in the work that the Apostle Paul is doing. And they're sending money to Paul through Silas and Timothy so he can devote himself exclusively to the preaching and teaching of the word. Paul's he's a one who, who does not have a traditional job. He travels from place to place, and often he's dependent on others. People who believe in the work, and they give generously to the work that he's doing. And so when you give on Sunday mornings, this is exactly what you're doing. You're giving to support and encourage and build up and invest in the work of this church so that your pastoral staff can devote themselves fully to the teaching and preaching of God's word, to shepherding you. Right? When you put money in that box, you're doing something good to yourself. Because you're allowing men to teach and preach and lead you in God's word to help direct this church towards health. I know this type of experience firsthand. I'm a missionary. I raise support to do the work that we do among Haitians. And my family has thrived under the kindness and generosity of churches just like this. I would not be able to do the work that I do apart from the generosity of churches like this, just like the Apostle Paul. But sometimes the accounts get a little low and and Noah has to go make some tents. And I'm not opposed to doing that. But while I'm making tents, I have divided focus, just like the Apostle Paul had. And so I can identify with the Apostle Paul, right? He's got this encouragement about the work that he's done in Thessalonica and things are going well. He's got some money in his pocket. And so what does he do? He devotes himself fully to the teaching and preaching of God's word. He's got his companions at his side, and and Paul's really ready to go. And so Paul becomes fully occupied with testifying to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. And as usual, he receives opposition. They revile him. They mock him. 
They don't believe the things he's saying, and they're opposed to what he's saying. And his response is pretty simple, but it's fairly complex. He removes his outer garment. He takes it off, and he shakes it out. And in so doing, he's saying, I am free from responsibility for you. He's doing the exact same thing that we see in Nehemiah chapter 5. He's saying, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. So Paul feels a personal responsibility to these people and to their souls. And it's not lightly that he he relinquishes that responsibility to them. He insists that he is innocent of their blood. And that should push on us a little bit. Don't miss this. If Paul is saying, okay, now I'm innocent of your blood, what's the reverse of that? That he wasn't at one point innocent of their blood. So how has he become innocent? His innocence is rooted in the fact that he has spent weeks, maybe months, telling these folks about Christ. So on the other hand, would he... Would he not be innocent of their blood had he never told them? Would he be able to say that with integrity? I'm innocent of your blood if he had never told them of Christ. Paul believes and teaches that those who live and die without faith in Christ will spend eternity in hell, not simply separated from God, but under the eternal wrath of God for all eternity, suffering under all of his power to damn and condemn. That's what he believes and that's what he teaches. All men and women and children who have never heard the gospel, that will be their eternal destination, their eternal experience. And words would fail us to explain that horror this morning. Take your deepest suffering, your deepest pain, your deepest betrayal, your hardest emotions, and multiply that by God's power to condemn. That will be the experience. It's it's described as a fire many places in the scriptures. Without the gospel, men and women and children will never be reconciled to God and they will never experience his love as they ought. This is sobering to Paul. This motivates Paul. This moves Paul. And it is the, the foundation of him saying what he has said about being innocent of their blood. Here's the motivational truth behind what Paul is saying is that every person in Corinth will either bow down before God in humble love and worship or they will burn up under God's just and awful wrath for eternity, paying the due penalty for their personal rebellion against God. Your friends and your neighbors and your family and your children will bow down or they will burn up. That's the reality of every single person that has ever lived or ever will live. And we have a responsibility to them. We hold the good news that God loves to save sinners and he sent Christ to do just that thing. So, you hold the gospel. As someone here this morning, Many of you hold the gospel in your hands. And the, the question is, are you, are you holding it like this? 
Or do you hold it like this? Are you holding it in or are you holding it out? So, so who has God drifted your way so that they could hear? Will you care enough about them to tell them hard and good news? Paul tells the Jews of Corinth that he will no longer come to them in their place, the synagogue, and he will no longer focus his efforts in Corinth on the Jews. Rather, he will pursue the Gentiles, non-Jews. And so in Acts 18, 7 through 8, we see this. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire family. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And so Paul does exactly what he said he was going to do. He leaves the synagogue and goes to the house of Titius Justice, who we are told is a worshiper of God. This most likely means that he, he left the worship of all the Greek gods and began worshiping the one true God. He may have been one of those uh, uh, Greeks that was in the synagogue among the people that Paul was teaching in verse 4. Paul goes directly to this guy's house. He leaves the synagogue, goes to this guy's house. And what we see in that is that there was some sort of relationship, some sort of commitment already on the part of Titius justice when Paul leaves the synagogue and goes to his house. So Paul's getting nowhere with the Jews, so he turns his focus. And in so doing, he puts the Jews in a position to where they have to put up or shut up. And something really amazing happens. The ruler of the synagogue and his whole family believe in Christ the Lord. So imagine with me this morning. I'm the Apostle Paul. You're this mixed group of, of Jews and Greeks, and, and we're all in the synagogue. And I'm telling you that Jesus is the promised one. You begin yelling at me and opposing me and saying all kinds of things to me. And so I start taking my clothes off, and I start shaking them out. And as I'm doing this, things quiet down a little bit, and I, I say, okay, have it your way. If you want to pay the penalty for your own sins, that's on you. I've told you the truth. And I'm free from responsibility for you all. And now I'm going to people who have not heard as you have. Then I leave and I go next door. Imagine there's a house here. I go next door to a large house. And no sooner have I hit the door here, Justin and his family, they stand up and they walk out with me. This type of thing would incite jealousy among the Jews in that synagogue. And this seems to be a technique that Paul uses in getting their attention. So much so that the ruler or the president of the synagogue, Crispus and his family, they leave that place, that center of community and worship for them. They leave that place to go after Christ. This would be like the imam of a local mosque being converted to Christianity with his whole family. This is huge. So Paul's focus on the Gentiles, it bears instant fruit. And we read in, in chapter 1 of uh, 1 Corinthians that Paul baptizes two people, Crispus and Gaius. And Gaius is most likely Titius Justice. So this guy that Paul has gone to his house, we read in 1 Corinthians that he gets baptized. It's exactly what it tells us in Acts, that people are being baptized. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, gets baptized. 
And so because of the hospitality of Titus Justice, they have a place to gather. People are hearing the word from Paul, and people are believing, and they're being baptized. And so some super exciting things are happening in Corinth. And likewise, there's some super exciting things happening in your community. You may not know this, but there's 400,000 Muslims living in the greater metro area. So that means from Baltimore all the way down to Richmond, 400,000 Muslims. There's 150,000 Muslims living in Fairfax County. There are two mosques within four miles of where we're sitting right now. Over 1,000 worshipers of Allah gather together every, every Friday within miles of where we meet. Muslims just finished their most holy time of the year, Ramadan, on Friday. And last Monday, last Monday night, they had what was called the Night of Power, where Muslims, practicing Muslims, they prayed to God for salvation and that he would forgive their sins. So, thousands of Muslims in your community prayed last Monday night. They spent the whole night praying that God would somehow save them. Many of them stayed up all night praying that. And they'll do it again next year because there is no assurance that God will do that, that God will save them from the penalty of their sins. Thousands of people in your community, Muslims, are ready to hear that there is salvation in Christ because he took hell on himself and he, poured, he bore the wrath of God on himself on the behalf of all who would trust him, who would believe the gospel. Many of them have never heard this message. Most of those 100,000, 150,000 people had never heard the gospel. I grew up in the South. I didn't hear the gospel until I was 18 years old. Never heard the gospel. I would dare to say most of these Muslims have never heard the gospel. So, so who will tell them if you don't? God is bringing the nations to you. And so who will tell them if you don't? You have a responsibility at some level to help snatch these men and women and children from the fire. We have responsibility. Verses 9 through 11, we see Paul has a vision. In verse 9 it says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word among them. And so it seems strange that God would send this vision to Paul just as things are going so well. We would have expected this vision in verse 1 when Paul comes into Corinth, fearful and discouraged. But if we think back, we will remember when things go well for the kingdom, Paul ends up beaten and imprisoned and run out of town. And so this message is right on time because things are going well. And in verse 9, when Luke says, the Lord says he means the Lord Jesus. So the Lord Jesus comes to Paul in yet another vision as it is the theme in the book of Acts. And, and Jesus intends to speak directly to Paul about how he's feeling, speaking to his emotions. And he's acknowledging Paul's concerns, and he, and he quells them 
with this greatest possible remedy of, I am with you. I'm with you, so who can be against you? He says, I am with you, Paul. The Lord affirms what Paul has already been doing, and he insists that he keep on speaking, continue speaking. Jesus then explains that no harm will come to him. And God makes this specific promise that we'll see he he keeps later in the passage. Then the the Lord Jesus explains exactly why Paul should go on speaking. Here's why Paul should go on speaking. I have many in this city who are my people. Jesus is saying to Paul, I died to make specific people in Corinth mine. Go on speaking so they can come to me by faith in our message. The fact is that Jesus died to save specific sinners. And this fact is the the single greatest motivation to share the gospel that I can think of. Because I can be sure that many will come to faith because Christ died as a ransom for many. I can be sure that God has people because he died to save them. And so my responsibility is to be faithful sharing the message. I don't have to be fearful of results. I don't have to do it perfectly. I have to be a clear communicator of the message of salvation, that those for whom Christ died would come to him. That's motivating. I have to say, I'm so thankful that Luke chose to include exactly what was said to Paul because it's something that I need to hear. I need to hear exactly what the Lord said to the Apostle Paul. And so something I was asking myself this morning as I studied sitting in a Starbucks in Reston is, is do you have people here? This man sitting across from me with his daughter, are those your people? This Middle Eastern guy fixing my coffee, is is he one of your people? These two ladies adding sugar to your coffee, could they be yours? This Chinese family sitting together, speaking in Mandarin, are they your folks? And I'm getting the sense that he's saying, yes, I have people here. Keep on speaking. That's the sense that I'm getting here, and that's the sense that I get in my hometown. Keep on speaking. I have people. So would you pray that this week? Would you ask God who are the people he is after? Ask him to help you find them and tell them of Christ. Last night, uh, we ordered pizza, and and a guy comes to the front door. Clearly, clearly a Middle Eastern guy, and his name's Aziz. And you know, ask him, you know, how did Ramadan go for you? And you know, he's talking about how Ramadan has just ended, and and that's a, a perfect opportunity for you and I to get into a conversation, to get into a relationship. But you have to be. I have to be a person that understands his eternal destiny apart from Christ. That I would be motivated to care for him. Because that's for his good and for God's glory, that he would come to know Christ. 
In effect, the Lord Jesus is saying to Paul, the doors of the gospel are wide open. Three balls, no strikes, swing away. You can't lose. I'm with you. And so what does Paul do? He stays for 18 months. The apostle Paul has been bounced from place to place to place to place, staying weeks at the time. He stays 18 months. Because of these promises from God, We see in Acts 18, 12 to 17. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge among these things. And he drove from the tribunal. He drives them all from the tribunal. And they all seize Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. And so, as usual, the Jews come after Paul. By God's grace, it took them a while to do that. But nevertheless, they come after him. They they bring him to court. and, And the local judge, seeing what's going on, he says, look, I don't want to have anything to do with this. This is a matter of semantics. He shuts the whole thing down. And so, like a good mob, what happens? They grab the new ruler of the synagogue. You got to think, Crispus is like, hmm, glad I gave up that job. So they take the new ruler of the synagogue, they take him out and they beat him. And so, ironically, Gallio ignores this real crime that's happening in front of him. And so there's, there's some notable things about this part of our passage. All the things that God said he would do, he does. So Paul resists the temptation to be fearful, and he goes on speaking. The Lord ensured that Paul was not harmed, though once again charged with a crime. And lastly, the Lord kept his promise that he had many people in the city. And we know this because the church at Corinth, it grows large. Large enough to have different factions. You remember in 1 Corinthians, there's groups of people saying, I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollos, I'm with Jesus. But there's, it's large enough to have different groups of people. So the church at Corinth grows large in numbers. And so God has seemingly a lot of people in that city, as it were. God was faithful to bring his people to himself. Even those who are very unlikely to come. Somebody turn to 1 Corinthians. Open your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians, look in chapter 1, verse 1. What does it say? What does it say? This is the response part of the sermon. First Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 1. Sosthenes. Wait, what? So you're telling me either Sosthenes is the most popular baby name of the first century or this guy that was just beat outside of the tribunal who's the ruler of the synagogue comes to Christ and then becomes very useful to Paul and actually helps him write back to the church at Corinth. Hmm. 
it's pretty unlikely that two rulers of one synagogue would come to Christ in 18 months. That's pretty unlikely. In fact, this whole account, it, it, it's pretty unlikely. It's pretty unlikely that Paul would find such dear friends upon entering a new town all alone. Perfect friends for him. That's pretty unlikely. It's pretty unlikely that the house next door to the synagogue would become a meeting place for churches in Corinth, for the church in Corinth. That's pretty unlikely. And it's pretty unlikely that a judge who would, who would side with Paul, a spokesman for a new sect in Rome, over an official religion in Rome, the Jews. That's pretty unlikely. And all these things are pretty unlikely unless God is at work in Corinth. It's pretty unlikely unless the Lord has people in Corinth, unless he's doing something. It's pretty unlikely that a high school dropout is teaching you the Bible right now. But I am. It's pretty unlikely that we're reading about an apostle who at one time killed Christians as a way to express his devotion to God. But we are. It's pretty unlikely that God would put on flesh and die so that he could save the likes of you and I, but he did. All of this is unlikely unless God is with us. But he is. Let us seek out unlikely people, believing that God has people and that he is with us. You have someone in your mind right now, the most unlikely candidate to come to Christ. That guy or that gal, you're thinking that person would never come to Christ. And I would put Crispus and Sosthenes and Paul in that category. I would put myself in that category. Highly unlikely. But because of the gospel... We have unity to God in Christ. Because of the gospel, we can be reconciled to God. I want to pray for you and for me that this highly unlikely gospel would be effective and powerful in the life of those people you deem unlikely to come to Christ. And that God would use unlikely people like you to communicate the gospel to them, that they might come to him. Will you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would use folks like us. Surely you have better tools than me. Um, folks that would be easier to use. But God, I ask that you would use me. I ask that you would use these folks here to reach out to the people that you're bringing their way, that they would have the joy of communicating your great love to people that need to hear it. And then those people, because of your grace, would come to you in faith because of your kindness towards them. All of what we've read this morning is so unlikely to happen. And so, God, we abandon ourselves to you to do very unlikely things in our community among Muslims and Chinese, among fathers and children, among brothers and sisters, people that we don't even know yet, we submit ourselves to you in hope, knowing that you have people and you are with us. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.